The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the guys on staff here at University Ministries and the Inn. So stoked you're here tonight. Uh, it's so great to have uh, such great energy in the room here late in the quarter as those of you that are advancing on towards term papers and finals. Thank you for being with us here tonight. A couple of things as we get on towards the end of the year. Next week, next Tuesday, uh, once again, 9 o'clock is our last in of the school year. Uh, which uh, in the same way that we just commissioned all those that are going to be heading out on deputation and to camps this summer, uh, we're going to have a chance to, to similarly pray for all of our seniors next week. So if you are a senior that wants to be prayed for next week, you're not going to want to miss it. So come back uh, for sure. We'll also get a chance to hear from the interns that are going to be uh, fired in a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks. No, I'm just kidding. They're not fired. Their term is up. But if, they were, if their term was going to be any longer, I'd fire them. Um, I'm just kidding. No, seriously. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so as we, as we uh, continue on tonight, though, I want to remind you, this is an announcement we made earlier on in the year, that here at the Inn, we are part of College Young Life. And we love Young Life here. It's a, it's a great partnership that we have. In fact, last night I was, I was uh, thrilled. I got to go and share at Young Life Highline down in South Seattle, which was a blast. Some folks here tonight. I was stoked when, uh, when John and Zach gave me the invitation to go speak there. So there's this great relationship that we have uh, with Young Life. And the, who you get to hear from tonight is the guy that's spearheading. Everybody knows that Young Life is, it does high school ministry so well. Well, we're, we're getting into college ministry as well. And there isn't a better guy in the country doing Young, young Life College than who we get to hear from tonight. And, and at the end of the year, we often start reflecting on what has this school year been like for me? What's this What's been the great things, you know, what have been the great things that have happened this year? And what I want to tell you in introducing Steve tonight is that one of the highlights of my year this year has been the friendship that I have had the opportunity to develop with Steve. It has been just a wonderful surprise. He's a great brother in Christ uh, and just a phenomenal pastor. He is a college pastor at heart. Before he joined us here, he was down in Arizona as a college pastor. He is uh, a man that has three boys of one wife, which is nice, and uh, and is and is also a, a fellow Husky. So please give one more time a warm in welcome. To my friend, Steve Blacksmith. Yep. If you can keep the number of wives less than the number of kids, that's a good thing. So, Hey, anybody here a fan of Lost? Sorry. <laughs> uh, me too. And uh, I mentioned that tonight and uh, to Ryan, and he goes, don't say anything. Be quiet. I haven't seen the ending. So if you want to really wreck his world, but don't. He's a super nice guy. So um, all I asked him was, did anybody see any of the alternate endings on Jimmy Kimmel afterwards? Yeah. If you haven't, go and check those out on the web. They're pretty funny, uh, as it turns out. So um, I saw something that was maybe a little bit more appropriate, but I was thinking about this because my family has watched Lost 
for a long time. And so much so, actually, my wife, Heather, and I started to watch it. And then our oldest son, who's now 16, when he was about 13 in the summer, he goes, hey, can I watch that with you? We started watching, but our, our middle guy was still a little bit too young. And so uh, we would watch it, the three of us together, and we kind of got caught up because we missed the first season and stuff. We got caught up, and then we'd watch it together. And then Drew got old enough, really, to watch uh, Lost with us last year. He didn't bother to go back to watch any of the other years at all. <laughs> Anybody watch Lost with any of those people? Like, it, And we're so gentle with them, a house of the three boys. You know, it's just, you know, it's like, it's fantastic. And Drew goes, hey, hang on, can you tell me who that guy is? Shut up, Drew. That's pretty much how it kind of goes on in our house. So, anyhow, but, so we, we, I'm going to admit it here. I'm going to raise my hand. My name's Steve. It's potential that I'm addicted to Lost. And, and so... I saw this clip and I thought of me and I thought of some of you. So check out this little clip about help for those of us who might be addicted to Lost. Yeah, just a replay. There you go. If you were laughing a little bit too hard when he said he missed her birthday last year, he said this year we're going to watch it together. And she says, thanks, Perspective. That's great. So I love that. You know, um, I did kind of get a little bit into it, and I'm going to have to figure out what to do. The great thing is now I don't have to go home because on Tuesday nights, you know, I used to have to go home and have that conversation. Like if any of the boys were awake, I'd say, don't, don't, don't. And then I couldn't really talk to him until whatever it was, you know, Wednesday night or whatever I could watch it. And, but Lost is not everything in this world. And, uh, and so we'll move on to whatever, whatever is next. But there is a little bit of a nugget out of Lost because I'm, you know, pride myself on being, you know, tied for second in the king of the Segway competition where how do we get from there to talking about community? But there was one speech that was given on Lost once that really does talk about this need that we have. And it was just a bunch of characters there, but it fit in the setting, right? Because they're people. You do get the, the part they're playing actual people, right? So the speech, though it's actor giving a speech, I think it's really pertinent to us as, as human beings. Why do we need one another? And, and how, as we talk tonight, how God has, has kind of designed things. Part of God's purpose is that we would live this life out in relationship, face-to-face with the God of the universe, but also in relationship with others. Truly to be whole is to be in a whole and right relationship with the God of the universe, to be in, on the way to being whole in terms of dealing with our relationship with ourselves. And because of that, a little bit of the overflow is that we'd be able to have good interactions whole and healthy interactions with other people. So, one more little clip. There won't be any other after this, I promise. But just a clip of from Lost about our need for one another. Really, we can probably close in prayer right now. But um, <laughs> I am going to continue, even, even on that note, that uh, it turns out that was a lot of buildup for the line I could have just said. If we can't live together, we're going to die alone. And uh, I'd back up even a little bit further there. He talks about, sure, they were in a plane crash. But for many of you this year, when you were thrown in here as a freshman or a transferring sophomore, or you've known people for a long time here, but every year there's a new group. There's a new at least one quarter of the university, or there's people in this big community here that come from different schools, or um, you're always meeting new people. But when you're, the, when you're on the low end of the totem pole, so we've got our high school seniors and folks here from high school checking things out, as they're getting ready, as they look to their future. And many of you, I also know there's another end here of folks that are getting ready to graduate right now. And it's, it's really interesting because when you were afraid of your future as a high school senior, you may look, you think about this now, if you're a college senior, you think, wow, well, that's a really big transition. Really? Which feels scarier now? As you're getting ready to transition out. It's really interesting. As a little kid, all you want to be is big. Then you get to the precipice of big, and you don't want to be big right now. 
you're like, this is scary. It's the unknown. It's the thing that we've pushed toward. But even in that, not the answer for all of that, and I'm not going to say that God's designed for us, that the key to it is community, but in the midst of it, part of God's plan is clearly community. We need to have people upon whose shoulders we can rest some of our weight and our burden. Our lives are, are, are more full and more rich when they're engaged with the lives of others. It's not just our story, but the stories of others played out around us that makes life more rich. Maybe, different from lost, it won't be the key to life or death for us. But I, I just would submit to you that as we consider living into the fullness of what God has created us to be, that if we take serious the call to community and to God's community, we'll really enjoy it a lot more, what that process looks like in our life. You know... Um, I'm going to read to you a clip. There's, there's a, uh, if you want to bring up the first slide there. This is really interesting. Um, I was considering this quote. It's by C.S. Lewis, which, you know, for many, how many of you read some C.S. Lewis? You think, wow, that guy's smart. I should be that smart. That'd be good. Um, but I appreciate his honesty, too. And he was asked this question in this book, God in the Dock, answers to questions on Christianity. And the question was, what do you think about people? Should they, should they go to church? Should they be a regular attender? Do you think that's really important? And he basically kind of went, it's kind of hard for me to answer. I appreciate that. That he didn't lead with, well, yeah, you're, you're supposed to do that. What he said was, he reflected for a second, hard for me to answer, and then he shared from his own experience. When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. I love that. That's honest. You've got to appreciate it. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were not, nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. I'm fond of saying, as a man of just moderate intellect, that it's fantastic for me that when people challenge me with questions that I understand, I can say, you know what? I know that there is someone smarter than me who believes what you and I believe. And really, I don't think I'm a dummy, but I'm always encouraged when somebody who I see is really, really smart says, knows what they know, and says... What I hold to be true as well. We need one another. And one of the things that I love that comes out of Lewis's uh, response there is that God can use community to refine us. One of the things that he says is refined there is arrogance, conceit, a sense that we're a, that we're a lone wolf, so to speak, for those of you who are fans of The Hangover. Uh, <laughs> we need way more lone wolves to join our wolf pack. That would be fantastic. So. Thank you, Zach Hunter, for ruining my life with that. That's fantastic. I love it. Um, anyhow, um, God's purpose definitely is wrapped up into this idea of relationship. I'll just take you really quickly, all the way from Genesis straight to the New Testament. Just a few thousand years, we'll cover it really quickly, I promise. We are, though, if you'll grant me this, just every now and then give a yes. Do you believe that the beginning of the Bible seems to give some sort of assertion that we were created for relationship with God? If so, say yes. That's fantastic. Someone says, no, I don't know if we debate. I don't know. Anyhow, um, you may or may not know that, that even that first relationship, our relationship with God as God's intended for us, 
comes out of the relationship within the Trinity. That if you really think about it, that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there together at creation. And in John chapter 1, it talks about that too. It says the Word was God and was with God. And, and they were there together. And then ultimately, that Word became flesh. The Holy Spirit was clearly present in creation. So here's God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What marks that community's relationship? Absolutely. So part of our creation is an overflow of the relationship within the Trinity. Now, that doesn't mean, really important, is that we were created to fulfill some need of the God who has no need to be fulfilled. God. God in the Trinity was completely fulfilled. And yet, here's this wonderful thing. It makes creation really kind of an act of love. To have one, let us make man and woman in our own image. One to be like. One to be in relationship with. We're the beneficiary of the Godhead wanting to love. Absolutely pour love out upon a created one. That's clearly our intention. So you, you, you grab with me with that, that um, you granted me that, that we are created for a relationship. Do most of you think that we're created for community with one another? Anybody else? Yes? Give me a yes. That's fantastic. It's good. You're just going, hey, if I say yes, will you move it along? It really is relationship and love is so critical within the doctrine of the Trinity that part of what it means to be created in God's image is to be in relationship. We can't be created in God's image and be totally apart from, other than we were intended to be in relationship. What does God get out of a deal like that? I think, honestly, the possibility that, that we would love God back. You know, I've been a dad for a little over 16 years now, and, and uh, my kids have given me, they've just been a great source of joy. And those of you who know me a little bit, you're probably going, good, he went, he went five minutes without talking about his kids. Look it. That's what I do. So, um, but they've always taught me, I mean, so many humorous things, fun things along the way, but mostly they teach me in some sort of, Oh, perspective, some sense as I look at them because of the love that I feel and I know that I'm a broken and flawed person, how much more God must love me. I mean, I just can't get over that. I mean, still today. I mean, I always do this, by the way. This is the signal of me carrying one of my kids like this. They mostly like the football carry. It was good for their little little bellies that would kind of be upset and you'd kind of wear, you know, belly down and walk them this way. But I like to turn them around face to face and walk them this way. And I'd always carry them around like this. And we had long children. Our oldest one was 22 and three quarters inches long when he was born. And so it was good because you got a good long grip and you could kind of carry them like this. And I'd walk down the hall like this and Heather would go, could you just, I go like, like I'm going to drop them. Okay, I did the once, and she never let me forget. <laughs> so, anyhow, um, but as I, as I would look at my son, just after he was born, 1.17 p.m., February 3rd, 1994, staring at his face. He's done absolutely zip in this world, right? What's he done? To, he hasn't mowed my lawn or anything like that. I'm looking at him, and I honestly think, I don't think I could, and I love my wife, but I know she was thinking the same thing, so I didn't feel bad about this. I, I don't think I could ever love any, anything more than this. And boom, in my ears, in my subconscious somewhere, I mean, God, God doesn't usually audibly speak to me. I'm usually afraid of people who think God speaks to them all the time. But I can't get away from this one that I felt somewhere in there was, as I'm saying, I don't think I could love anything more than this. Like God saying, I love you more than that. Great perspective. Great sense. What does God get out of our relationship? 
the chance that we might choose to love God back. When J.D. was really little, he used to walk around and, and uh, I've told some folks that my, my oldest son, is, he's, he, he was a babbler and he communicated very, very early. He had a lot of words and he was just gifted. And, you know, so um, he'd walk along, but you never wanted to miss his little mumbles because they were hilarious. Like, because, you know, a little kid's view on the planet is rather interesting, right? You know, and so one day he came home from school and he was... He he'd figured out he liked this girl named Elizabeth because he said she's beautiful all the time, mom. And so he's in the, these are the nuggets that a mom of three boys clings to. And uh, so she's like, tell me more about Elizabeth. And then he goes, she goes, you know, so you, do you like her? It's not like you'll marry her. He goes, no, mom, I'm going to marry you. You know, so. Yeah. Where does that leave me? Okay, so yeah. So, aw, but yeah, yeah, it touched her heart. And so, but she thought about it for a moment, thought it better to explain to him, I'm, you know, I'm already married to dad. And, uh, and so, so she did and he gets, he, he gets ready to walk away. And again, my wife with really good ears and infinite wisdom to not miss that little mumble. He, she's explained to him that, that she's, you know, she's already married and he turns and walks away. And as he's walking away, he says, man, all the good ones are taken. <laughs> She gets on the phone, she calls me, she goes, you'll never believe that. I go, that's pretty funny. <laughs> so, really, that's exactly what God's design is for us. Part one, a created being created to be loved. And God's greatest hope is that we would want to love him back. That, that that kind of response would be the response that we would have for God. It becomes a part of our identity. Really, if you look at the, at the Old Testament, the very beginning of it, you, you have two choices, and they're really good choices, so you can't go wrong on this one, as to what your identity is. You're the beloved of the creator of the universe, or you are a child of God. You are a daughter or son of the king. Uh, this next slide up here says this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. I love that. Direct statement. That is what we are. It doesn't say that that's what we feel like. That's what we earn. That's what we aspire to be. We are the children of God because God says so. Before we've ever done anything, that's how God looks at us. What a wonderful thing, though, as we begin to live into the opportunity to be in relationship with a God who already loves us like a child. Loves us perfectly. Just as we are, not as we should be. He calls us His beloved. He calls us daughters and sons. That's our identity. Now, we'll fast forward a few thousand years because it would take us a while if we didn't. Years filled with victories, defeats, wanderings from God, God's restoration of, God's preservation of, His frustration with His people. A key, key phrase in that sense is this, His people. God's story within the book of the Bible is not the story of God and a person, but God and His people. Not the story of a child of God, but the children of God. Not of one who is beloved, but of God's beloved that we call the community of faith. If we participate fully in the community of faith, we are participating fully in this story of God and the people. The Old Testament, some would say, is the story of God and the people. And here's the good news. The New Testament is the story of God in the people. Christ in you, the hope of all the glorious things to come. The God of the universe. It pleased the God of the universe.
to dwell in the form of a man, to reconcile us to him, to make this relationship right, to really get it back to square one, which is identity A, child of God. That's God's desire and plan for us. In the New Testament, we find the same story happening. The the initiating God of the universe who's loving us, and then a separate thing here, redeeming us. Does anybody know what the word redeem means? Anyone? There's a bunch of them. In its simplest firm, what? To call out of slavery. That's right. To save? The very first definition in Webster's, anyhow, and these all kind of fall in there, is this, to buy back, to redeem. You know, like if you have a coupon and you turn it, you kind of, well, I like to turn that in, I get something for it. But think about this. This is really the picture. Out of slavery is really important in this one. But a slavery of whose doing? (laughs) A slavery of our own doing. That the God of the universe is in the process of redeeming us, of buying us back. It's as if this, these, this would be the, kind of the terms for, for this century. It's like we've gone and pawned ourselves off to get kind of a quick hit or some quick cash to get us through something in this world. We knew that we were worth more than what we received. And we probably felt a little bit dirty about doing it. Maybe that we lowered ourselves. We knew in our heart that this is... Not Maybe we didn't even know that much about God, but as we've run to these things in the world, there's something in us that God put there that says, ah, this isn't what I'm supposed to run to. By the way, the community of God can help us to see those things, to communicate to us as we start to run to Him. That's, that's not for you. But we ran to it all, you know, nonetheless, all on our own. And we find ourselves feeling desperate. It's like we've, been, we've sold ourselves to the highest bidder. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity, the payment for that turning, on Jesus. That's an incredible thing. We've all gone astray. You've gone a different way than I have. That's this amazing thing about brokenness, about looking for life anywhere else than in this right relationship with Jesus. It takes a zillion forms. It's just all sin. We're looking somewhere else for life when God says you'll only find life here. And we all find ourselves in need when we do that. Anybody here, please don't raise your hand on this, but you can think about this. Anybody here, if you're honest, you've ran to some things this year that you go, man, I really wish I had not done that. Ah, I'm so sorry that I did that. Or just the, the worst question that just resonates through an old person's mind anyhow is why? Did I do that? Because there's never a good answer for that. Why did I do that? We've lost ourselves in our brokenness only to be disappointed by where we've ended up, wanting the right identity that God intended for us to have, but being broke, we can't buy the identity back. We can't do it on our own. So Jesus does. He redeems us. Luke 15 talks about the process of this redemption. The beginning of Luke 15, which you'll recall, it's the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. It starts, that whole pattern of those stories starts with some religious people saying to Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? It's a loaded question, right? He's supposed to explain why he hangs out with people that aren't very holy. And what Jesus does is give three stories. Each one, they kind of grow in value along the way. A sheep, and then this valuable coin, but then ultimately a son, a child who had life together with his father, but chose to look somewhere else for life, and the father let him go. And the story continues to go on and on. In the middle of the story of the lost son, 
Luke writes this. Then, about the son, he came to his senses. Isn't that an awesome place in life? If you've ever come to your senses and you went, wait a minute. It can be different than this. I don't have to be stuck where I am right now. That is a freeing place. Right at that moment, life changed for him. Now, he still had some running back to his father to do. But once he came to his senses and realized how much better it would be to really be a child of God again, then really he'd been redeemed. Jesus buys us back. It's his purpose. Now, the thing where this kind of links in to the, to the main package of scripture that I want to kind of cover tonight is this. That as Jesus is in the business of restoring people, he doesn't just restore them just to themselves. Now you're better. You're not a leper anymore. Now you're better. You're not blind anymore. He clearly restores them. Whatever their issue is with them, particularly those who came to him with a physical need, but also a restoration them to him. Maybe they didn't understand it at the time. But I make this claim that nobody that had a personal interaction with Jesus Christ, with God with skin on, left the same. Even the people who walked away deciding they weren't going to follow Jesus were changed forever. The rich young ruler walked away sad. Because something had changed. Here's what would change. When the God of the universe stands in front of you, and sees you for who you are and all your brokenness and doesn't judge you or condemn you, but instead offers you a new life, you either take that new life or you know you've missed a really good opportunity. But you're changed forever. What happens though? God's intention is to restore us, to restore us to God, us to ourselves, and then also ultimately to people in the community. I'm not making this stuff up. Think about it. When he, when he healed the leper, one of the lepers who was healed by... Jesus said, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus, the scripture says, reached out and touched him and says, of course I want to be clean. Huge thing. Physical touch to the one who'd been unclean, who nobody touched since he'd become a leper. Huge thing that God knew he needed. But then also, this sense with the lepers who were cleansed, go off and now present yourself. Make sure that you complete this transaction. Why? Present yourself to the priest so that what? You can be welcomed back into the faith community. When he healed a dead girl, so practical, the God of the universe picks her up, says, little girl, I say to you, get up, and then gives her back to her mom and dad, restores a relationship with the ultimate community, right? The family. And then really practical, too, says, give her something to eat. Apparently being mostly dead is exhausting. I don't know. She was just famished. Did the same thing with the blind man. When the God of the universe stands before us, if we're honest about our brokenness, I think God can look at us and say, of course I want to heal you. And more than that, I want to give you to a community of faith. Is that what you want? I think most of us would say, we want to be healed. If I were to say to you, God of the universe is standing before you and says, what do you want? I bet you've got a list. But among that list, is there to be in a right relationship with family in a right relationship with other believers, in a right relationship with the community of God. That's God's plan for me and for you. I submit for all of us that the honest presentation of our broken lives in front of the God who longs to heal us is our ticket into the community of God. I'm just going to unpack just one, it won't take very long, one little interaction with Jesus Christ with a broken woman who was honest about it and a bunch of broken people who hid their stuff. Pray with me that God might open up somewhere in the midst of that interaction that you might identify with at least one person in the room 
at least one person and see, can God move you from where you are or are you stuck? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the, the chance to, to look, to blitz through your whole word. hope I covered it well, but uh, the sense that you've loved us since before we were born. You've known every hair on our head since before we were created. You love us perfectly and desire that we would love you back and you've given us people around us to encourage us along our walk with you and people in our paths to work with us, to walk with us so that we could reach out to the rest of a broken world that desperately needs us to do so. God, as we consider this interaction in the book of Luke, help us to see a bit of ourselves in the middle. Help us to see what you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the next slide up in Luke chapter 7, beginning of verse 36. In the New International Version, there's these little, um, you know, headers at the top of each one. And this one is really fantastic. It says, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Wouldn't you like that to be the descriptor of your life? Just a, Anointed by a sinful woman. That'll be the thing that everyone will remember. I, I would say to you that by the end of this story, if you've never heard it before, you'd take that. You'd say, go ahead and call me that all you want. Because this woman's life was changed, absolutely changed, by the power of a God who's powerful enough to change and loves us enough to want to, to step into the brokenness of our lives. It starts out, this says this, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house, this religious leader, and reclined at the table. When a woman who'd lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. What a horrible thing to think in your head. Two uh, important points. There are um, a couple of different times... Uh, all the Gospels have a recording of Jesus being anointed by a woman in a similar fashion. But the other three Gospels, it seems to be at a different time and by a different person. This may or may not be true, but it'd be a fine study for you to take a look at there. Specifically, reasons why I kind of lean that way is the other ones all happen at a particular house just before Jesus goes to his death. And much of what goes on in the inter interaction here, you would say that the people who he's interacting with don't seem to know of all this history that would have happened if he was just about to go to his death. Also, at the end of this interaction, since he got up and traveled away to preach and teach in other towns, and that wasn't the case in the other place. But really key to this is in the other interactions, the woman who... Um, anoints Jesus with this, with this oil is identified as Mary, as the sister of Lazarus. And here, it doesn't seem to be the case at all. A couple things. A woman who lived a sinful life in the town, that's not how Mary was perceived, that's not how her family was perceived in that specific town, um, was eating at Jesus' house. Also, it would be interesting to describe her and not describe her as Mary, because if it was at, in her town, and if Lazarus was there, they would have said, oh, it's Lazarus' sister's not coming, not like, who's that girl? Um, but instead, it says this. She'd lived a sinful life. And we may say that this is a difficult way to be described, but nobody's debating in this. You can decide for yourself maybe what you think the sin is. I don't know how you have to live in such a way that everybody else would know your reputation. I just know this. I'm not judging her. <laughs> I just know that she must have been desperate. And whatever it is that she believed about Jesus, she'd heard enough about him to say, 
I think this is the guy that helps the desperate people. So she brought this little bit of faith, which, by the way, in case you didn't know, is enough for God. Right into a hostile situation. Actually, I think it's pretty good faith, right? Religious people all around, and she's like, just going to sneak in here. She gives us the answer to the question, what would you possibly bring to a dinner with Jesus? Bring your sin. Bring your brokenness. And don't try to hide it. And everything in your life just might change. But if you don't, you're going to end up stuck. Here's how I know that. The Pharisee who'd invited him said to, to, said to himself, I love these interactions in the scripture where well-meaning people comment in their own mind and then Jesus answers them out loud. It's not fair, but it's kind of cool. The Pharisee who'd invited him said, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. Next slide. Jesus answered him out loud. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said, as if he wasn't thinking something bad. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. It's about a day's work. So 500 days wages. The other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Why is that the question? Isn't that interesting? It's a question for the God of the universe whose desire is that we would love him back. Now, which of them owes him more, right? Who should be more? Which of them will love him more? It's a relational term. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Next slide. Then he turned toward the woman. He points to her, but he's still teaching Simon. And he says this. Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, it's important, she's not just a teaching aspect for everyone else in the room. He took the time to say, here's what's happened. But now he's speaking to her, and I don't think he cares who else is there. Directly to her, the only one who can say this and have it make any difference in our life. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He's not listening. He says to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What did he do in that moment? What did he declare in that moment? Did he make her right with herself? Forgiven, wiped clean. Do you think she felt different? Do you think her self-image, her identity was different? If she could describe it, I think she'd say, I feel like a daughter. My identity has been restored. To herself, of course she knew that she was okay in Jesus' eyes. What more could he do? He'd focus just on her, ignored everyone else and said, you're worth this moment. But even more than that, because he did it in a public place, Jesus right there at that time restored a woman to a faith community. He told that faith community, and he even tells us still today through that action, the determining qualification for those who will be welcomed into the household of God will not be the sum total of their sins measured up against somebody's standard. But instead it will be the sincerity of their desire for mercy. 
this is good news for me. I have so much broken stuff in my life. And a lesson for me in the midst of this is, what's different between the woman and the rest of the sinners in the house? Because does anybody think that everybody else in there has got their life all straight up together? Not a chance. There's only one difference between her sin and theirs. Hers is right out in the open. She leads with it. And theirs is hidden. Another difference is this. They are stuck and frustrated and confused by the end of the interaction with Jesus. And she is free. Who do you want to be now in the story? Call me the sinful guy all you want. Because the ticket to us being restored to God and declared right in the community of God is a willingness for us to not hide our sin from the God who already knows it, but to lead with it. To say, it's worse than you think, Lord. Do you believe that? I only mostly do, I'm going to be honest. I would really like to. I would like to live as if I really believed that if I, the more open I am and honest I am before God with my sin, if I confess my sin, He's faithful and just to forgive me my sin, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I can say that, but I only mostly believe it. But I really, really, really want to. Do you have some things in your life since you become a believer that you're ashamed of? The subtle and not so subtle ways that maybe you've denied Jesus? Do you have things you've kept from Jesus? Things that even right now, as I'm speaking, you're saying, Steve, if you had any idea how far I've fallen, maybe even just this year, the things I've done or thought or what I'm in the midst of right now, if you had any idea, there's no way that you would say that God could have mercy on me. Really? Okay. Well, let me say this to myself then, but you can feel free to listen in. God is not surprised by our sin. Nowhere in that interaction does Jesus go, Oh! is not surprised by my sin. God's not surprised by your sin, and He's not made powerless by it either. 1 John 4, verses 9-10, through 10, the next slide says this, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son in the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's not about what we do or initiate. It's always God initiating with us. He has shown us what love is. He sent His Son into the world to buy us back. What's the difference to God between the sin that's hidden and the sin that's exposed? The sin that is hidden, though He longs to free us from it, we're stuck by it because we're, we're held captive to it still. As soon as it's exposed, it's lo- it loses its power over us. Because God's power is bigger than the power it has. Because God's truth, God's statement about that sin carries more than what, what we've given to it so far. And His statement about our sin is this. It is covered. I paid for it. It's done. The rest of that verse says this. talks about the, the role of the community in that for us. Dear friends, 1 John four eleven through 12 Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Isn't that a great, wouldn't that be a great thing? God's love complete in us. Sign me up for that kind of community. I don't think that's a community I've always known, but I'd like to have that community. A community in which the God we knew, that we knew we needed, 
was there and purposed for us to have that kind of community. Okay, a few tips. We'll just wrap up with this. A few tips on community. These are some transition points for those of you heading into college from high school, heading out of college into the real world, or going to stick around for a few more you know, years. Super senior. It's fantastic. We'll take that if we need to. <laughs> Preach it. There'll be a spot for you there next year. It's fantastic. So, Here's the thing. It, or if you're transitioning from your freshman year to your sophomore year, here's my little tricky tips on community. First one is this. You need to be known. Fully and completely known, definitely by God, but you need to have somebody that knows this stuff in your life. Find somebody that you can share your life with so that you can be known, but you don't need to be known by everyone. What I mean by that is not to be unfriendly, but not everybody needs to know all of our stuff. Unfortunately, we're still the broken community of God, and as we're all growing up, we still hurt other people in the community of God. Not all of your stuff needs to be out there for everybody, but at least somebody needs to know the stuff of your life. You have to have somebody in your life who you don't have to pretend with. Because if you pretend, you end up like that, the Pharisee in, in the situation where you're just pretending that things are good with you and you're stuck. You've got to have somebody who can call you, can say to you, hey, do you have any lustful thoughts today? And you can go, yeah. <laughs> Maybe one or two. <laughs> like, you know, somebody that you can be honest with. And I don't think it's like to beat you up over the head to kind of go, I need to know exactly when, exactly how. To, uh, yeah, keep me away from that person. Don't want them as my friend. But somebody who can say, I'm with you. God's working in our lives. Have you had any thoughts today where you've denigrated yourself, where you've, where you've put yourself down? Because you, I know you struggle with self-image. Why I know this? Because you've shared it with me. Where you feel worthless. Can I pray with you? Can I be with you? Not to beat you up with your stuff, but to lift you up in the midst of your stuff. You need to be known. The second thing is this, and it's related to that. Can we be gentle with one another? Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Jesus Christ has forgiven you. That's Ephesians 4.32. You can make a cute little song about it, actually. I, just, I, I think this is something we can do. I don't think this is big spiritual enlightenment that as soon as we're grown up, we can do this. What if we decided heading into next year? I want to be known by some people, but even the people I don't know, I'm going to try and be gentle towards them. I think it would change the way the rest of the world sees Christian community. See how they love one another. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be said about us? Be gentle with one another. Final little tip on this is don't wait to be perfect before you start to share what God's teaching you. There's a world out there that's just dying to hear any glimmer of hope. And they really don't care that we're perfect. The Pharisees had the perception of perfection and nobody wanted to be around them, at least not in that situation. I think the average person in your dorm or your fraternity Living at home with your family would rather have a not perfect you who's willing to share what's going on in their lives, just bit by bit. I think that gives them a sense that maybe that could happen to them as well. Where can that happen? It can happen here. If it's your first time to the end, welcome. If you're planning on coming back next year, do. Step into another level. Maybe you want to get involved in a small group in a chapter or dorm floor Bible study. We'd love to help you with that. You can sign up for Greek ministry. You can talk to... There's so many things over there every week that you can sign up, which are basically ways for you to go, I think I want to continue to walk further into the community of God and do that. Maybe you're, you're, you're going to live. Maybe some of you have applied to live in a house with a bunch of other believers so God can grow you up in that place. Or some of you, with just a few other believers, are choosing to live in a place where a lot of people will question your faith. The key is this. 
There's a bunch of places where you can grow in your faith. Don't do it alone. What if you're heading out, to co- out of college? There's still this opportunity for you. The mentored life is something you can choose. You can invite people to speak into your life. There's this place, Convergence. It's right across the hall. John spoke here last week. If you're wondering, well, I wonder what I do. Do that until you figure out what else you're doing. That'll be fantastic. Stay with a small group. Walk with people. Continue to be in community. For our high school friends, please don't even begin the journey in front of you alone. Let us know who you are. And if you're coming to Seattle, uh, you know, I'm telling you, I said it earlier, you'll have to tell us to leave you alone because we really want to welcome you. And if you're going somewhere else, give us the chance to connect you when you're there. Let me just say this, I'll close in prayer. The best things for me about Christian community are this. My joys are understood. My calling is supported. Probably my most favorite favorite. My sufferings are shared. My faith grows, and because of that, I'm better prepared to be used to hand out little Dixie cups of hope and mercy and grace to a world that is so thirsty. Don't you want to be a part of a community like that? Let's pray. God, thank you for the chance to, um, to be together, that you purposed it, designed it, you brought us here tonight. We're excited about that. Help us to have some sort of anchor point where we can choose then to be together with the bigger community of God where we'd have an honest assessment of ourselves. I'm a baby Christian. I need somebody who's walked longer with Jesus to talk to me. That exists, but not if I am too ashamed to say to someone, hey, I think I'm a baby Christian and I need somebody to disciple me. What if I've been walking with you for a long time? God, will you give me the courage to step out, to walk towards a people group here in the U District, to find somebody, whether it's as a young life leader or a youth leader or a peer-to-peer minister here, Somebody who's worth me giving this faith away. Don't let me stay and wait till I'm perfect, locked up away from the world. God, challenge us by community. Support us in community. And thank you for allowing us to find our identity in community as a daughter or son of the King.